Hello and welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. Dr. Nina Vossen is a psychiatrist, entrepreneur, and pioneer in digital mental health innovation. Dr. Vossen is the chief medical officer at Real, a mental health care company building a new therapy model. Through a monthly membership model, Real helps members access high-quality mental health care through a suite of on-demand tools, including their core product, Pathways. Each therapist designs and leads multi-session Pathways focuses on a specific issue ranging across topics like body image, navigating adult friendships, and managing anxiety or depression. Outside of her work at Real, Dr. Vossen is a psychiatrist and professor at Stanford, where she's the founder and executive director of Brainstorm, the Stanford Lab for Mental Health and Innovation. Brainstorm is the world's first academic laboratory dedicated to transforming mental health at scale through clinically informed consumer tech products. Dr. Vossen has worked as a healthcare advisor to the UN, the WHO Director General's Office, and the Obama and Biden presidential campaigns. She made her in government at Harvard, graduating as one of Glamour's top 10 college women, and received an MD from Harvard Medical School, where she was voted by classmates as a commencement speaker. She graduated from Stanford's adult psychiatry residency training program where she was the chief resident and received an MBA from Stanford's Graduate School of Business. She co-authored the number one Amazon best-selling book, Do Good Well, Your Guide to Leadership, Action, and Social Innovation, and was named by Business Insider as one of their 30 under 40 in healthcare in 2021. Hello, Dr. Vossen. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. We're very excited to get to know you and learn about everything that you do. First off, we'd love to hear a little bit more about your journey and how you kind of got to where you are today with regards to physician entrepreneurship and mental health. Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. And I just want to say thank you for what you all have created. I think that what you've built with the, uh, you know, the whole entire platform is just absolutely fantastic. And it's going to inspire so many people to build great things and just love, love what you've done. So thank you. Thank you for you. (laughs) Um, Let me tell you a little bit about my journey. So, you know, in terms of where I got to where I am today, I think that what I would start with is values. There are really two main values that I think have driven most of my decisions. And those two values are impact and community. And even if I go back thinking about growing up and everything, really, I've always been interested in thinking about how can I make the biggest impact possible? And community, I grew up in a small town in West Virginia that was really driven by having a close community. And so all along, as I entered college, went to medical school, entered mental health, that feeling of community and recognizing the power of community, I think, has always been really important to me. And so the intersection of both of those two values and ideals has been something that's really been a big driving force in what I've been looking for, how I've made decisions, and really where I've seen myself and my role in what I've wanted to do. In terms of then how I got to where I am today. So I think that today, when I think about, you know, mental health today looks nothing like it did when I was growing up, nothing like it did when I was in medical school, for sure. And so if I think about, you know, those two, and I'll I'll go back to, I, I think that I've always tried to understand what is the role of impact. And, you know, everyone can define impact very differently. For me, I think um, it has really been around how do I, one, reach a large audience, right? The the greatest number of people possible. Um, And also, I think, reach them in a really profound way. 
when I think about mental health, you know, when we, uh, one of the figures that, uh, one of the statistics that gets thrown around when we talk about mental health in the U S is always like one in five people have, you know, struggle with mental health. Um, I actually prefer to think that over the course of one's lifetime, it's 50% of Americans will have a diagnosable mental health disorder. And then when I think about who's actually then impacted by mental health, as we know, it's not just the person who's diagnosed, it's their family, it's their friends, which really means the entire country. Right. And so, um, to me, that just felt like, wow, this is something that is so profound in terms of how many people are impacted. This one problem feels like something that is just really something where I, I, I can, in my entire lifetime, I feel like I can commit my entire career to this one problem. And then moreover, um, you know, I've always been someone who's kind of going between different fields. In college, I studied political science while being pre-med and have always found, um, you know, kind of uh, the value of this kind of interdisciplinary mindset and interdisciplinary learning to be something that really drove me. And what I found so fascinating about mental health is that it is inherently a tremendously interdisciplinary field, right? Both when we think about why does mental health exist as a problem, it's this combination of cultural, social, economic, political, in addition to scientific, medical kind of issues in terms of how it presents itself. And then if we think about then what do we need to do to solve problems in mental health, it goes back to all those same things, right? Like even if we have this amazing medication, well, if you don't have a cultural understanding, then someone might never even take that medication, right? There's so much to it. And I found that sort of to be like endlessly fascinating. So with regards to, I guess, the future of mental health, um, why? So now there's been like a large boom, I guess, in innovation funding for behavioral health care. What do you think about that? And then why do you think it's been so slow, I guess, compared to other fields in medicine and healthcare? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I think that the first question, why has it been so slow? Really, it goes back to two big things, isolation and stigma. As we know, historically, mental health has just been so isolated from the rest of medicine, from the rest of the world in so many ways. And so, you know, that really by nature, we we know how valuable collaboration is for innovation, for discovery in all areas. And so when you have something that's just pushed aside, you know, it's, it's so hard, right? And then secondly, and stigma is a big part of that. And I think that because of stigma, no one wanted to talk about it, right? It it was sort of this like secret sort of thing in in terms of even discussing mental health, right? So part of it. And then of course, funding, there hasn't until very recently, almost, there really just hasn't been much funding for mental health. That's really why I think there's been a problem historically. And then it's also, if we think about even how we think about mental health, the inherent elements of what does it mean to be defined as a mental health issue. You know, if we go back historically um, and look at what made something mental health or psychiatry versus neurology, basically once we understand the nature of the disease, like for example, something like epilepsy a hundred years ago used to be treated by psychiatrists. And then once we know more, knew more about it, it became treated by neurologists. So, So I think that that's also something where because it's like this almost unknown feel that we still have these questions around that that's also kind of contributes. Um, But then to your question around the funding, the boom in funding has been absolutely tremendous. I'm so grateful and think that it's been, again, this mix of one that people are realizing 
wow, this, you know, this is a huge issue affecting our entire society Two, that, you know, when people get treated, they get better. So there's this tremendous ROI, both from the financial perspective, as well as just, you know, the responsibility we have to get people better and let them, you know, properly contribute to society and family. So, you know, we realize just the importance of addressing these problems and how when they don't get addressed, you know, those slew of, of issues that come up, everything from the opioid crisis to, you know, to eating disorders and beyond. The problem, though, that I do want to say is that I am concerned, especially in the last couple of years, there's almost so much funding that I think that a lot of times it seems like the business goals are coming ahead of the clinical goals and objectives. Even, you know, I hear a lot of times discussion around like engagement over versus efficacy. Mm -hmm. And that when you're designing a product or, you know, designing a company that people seem to care more about, oh, are we engaging the user and bringing them in over, have we built something that actually works? And as a clinician, you know, I think first and foremost, would I want to recommend this to my patients? Are they going to be getting better? And, and really, you know, this is a problem that's been going on for years and years. And it's getting a little bit better in that, you know, people are doing clinical trials. And that's one of the first things that we cared about at, at Real was, hey, let's make sure we're collecting the right evidence and that we know what we're doing is working and, and everything. But the, a lot of companies, most companies still don't have great data. They're still not building based on clinical outcomes and clinical efficacy. And even when I look to see what's getting funded, you know, a lot of times it's just not it doesn't have the clinical integrity that it needs. We need a stronger clinical voice. We need physicians and PhDs and scientists to really be bringing their understanding and knowledge to the development of these companies as we move forward. Um, because what I worry about when we think about the history of mental health and how um, you know there's such a worrisome history in terms of how people, these the most vulnerable people in our society have been treated historically, right? There's been this really world where people have been taken advantage of. And we need to make sure that we, that our ethics come first and foremost, and that we're always putting the needs of the patient first above profit and above any, anything else. What do you think are like the main ways um, and like the important ways of destigmatizing mental health? Um, whenever people talk about, you know, what are the biggest issues? I actually say stigma is one, two, and three. Mm-hmm. And, and I said just to really, you know, reflect that it's that big of a problem, right? Because it's everything from, you know, why are people not getting help to begin with the way we talk about it? But even for even now, you know, like, you know, as a psychiatrist, when I'm prescribing medications to people, there's still this sense of like, oh, but, you know, if I take a medication for my mood, that's different from if I take it for my blood sugar, right? And even this sense of, oh, I'll take it, but like, I should get off of it as soon as possible right? It's like, no, 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 wait, would you say that? You know, would you say that about your metformin, right? Um, and so it, it is still this, this huge problem. Yeah, you know, so myself, um, I, I struggled with depression when I was in med school, and I grew up in an immigrant household. We never talked about feelings. Mental health was not something I had any conception of until medical school. And it wasn't because I learned about it in medical school. It was because I experienced it in medical school. This was, gosh, 15 years ago. And, you know, the, well, things were very, very different. I hope it's much, much, much better now in terms of how things are talked about. But I had actually really, um, really hard experience, which was I got like diagnosed with depression. And um, unfortunately, even 
the way that it was talked about in medical school, like classmates and even faculty were not open to talking about it. And even I was encouraged to not get therapy in third year of med school because it would require me to leave our third year rotations for, you know, two or three hours, basically, right? To like leave, go, you know, travel to travel across town to see the therapist, do an hour of therapy, come back. And, and basically was told that, you know, if, if you're leaving, you know, trauma surgery for three hours every week, you know, you're not going to be considered a, a serious student. And, and the, the reality is they're right, right? Sadly, in the field of medicine, you know, we say physician, heal thyself. And we are very, we stigmatize ourselves, and we don't allow ourselves to be vulnerable in any way. So the dialogue around mental health, especially for us as clinicians, is so backward. So really what I realized was that there wasn't that safe space to talk about it openly. And so that, that's actually the reason why I decided to be so vocal about it. And you're right on my LinkedIn, I actually like put it as the very, very first thing. The reason I did that was I realized the more I was having conversations with people and talked about my own experience, I would see just an entire like physical change in how they would talk. Like their facial expressions would change. They would loosen up. People would light up or just, you could tell their anxiety would just like, you know, eliminate. And then the, where our conversation would shift just like went to this completely different place. You could tell they felt so open and I'm so grateful to everyone from like Michelle Obama talking about how she's had some episode, you know, struggle with depression over the pandemic, all the celebrities, all the athletes, everyone who's come out to talk about it. And because I see it with patients, I see patients come in and say, oh, this person talked about it. And I realized I had that same thing, you know? Um, so I think it's very powerful. And as we move forward, what I want the conversation to change from is right now, so many people are talking about, I have this. What I want it to change to is, and here's how I got help. You know, you know what I mean? Like, so like I got treatment and it helped me. I think that's what I would love for um, us to focus on moving forward. So shifting gears a little bit back to uh, your own personal kind of journey experience. I know you went to business school. How have you kind of combined your medical training and your business training? How do you balance now your clinical work with everything else you're doing? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So I'm going to have to uh, give props to my brother here. I remember my brother, um, he's a year older than me. He's an uh, oncologist. And he actually told me in terms of like, when I think about my career, that I should think about what is the problem that I think is the most important problem out there, basically. And that's how I should like choose what I want to focus my career on. And I remember in med school or even in college too, I was like, what, what's that problem? Like there's so many problems out there. And I didn't really know like what that was going to be. And then finally, you know, the reason I got into mental health was after, you know, struggling with mental health myself in med school, um, I, that that's what really opened my eyes to what a huge problem this was. And I realized, wow, this is something I really, really want to tackle. I think this is so tremendously important. And what I really thought about was, um, and something I say is that mental health is the greatest thief of human potential today. Like when we think all across the board from someone who's just maybe a little bit stressed before an exam, all the way through someone with, you know, chronic schizophrenia, it just takes away your ability to live a quality life, right? And, you know, that's one thing in the U.S. When I think about other countries, you know, in some countries, it's, it's so much worse. And so the potential then we have to like really give health and life back to people is just so magical and so sacred to be able to do that. You asked me at the beginning, you know, 
how I got to where I am. And I mentioned impact and community as two values that were really important to me. So then when I thought about, okay, so I know I want to tackle mental health. And I really think that impact is kind of that driving force. So as I thought about impact and where I could make the biggest impact in mental health, you know, there's so many fields and sectors where one can do that, right? There's clinical medicine, there's science, there's policy and, and business actually, and entrepreneurship was an area that I knew nothing about. No one in my family had any business background. But when I was in medical school, that was actually when the first wave of direct to consumer health tech really uh, was launching. Mm -hmm. And I actually thought I was going to do something more in like nonprofit or policy. When I entered medical school, I was a political science major. I'd done a lot of nonprofit work. And I thought that that was so cool, so exciting. And, And that's totally where my interests were. And then when I saw these kind of these apps taking place and the fact that it was, again, this was 15 years ago, let's, let's keep in mind. It was like, oh, wow. You know, like they're putting things on your phone and you can just access something and it's not going to be one patient at a time every 30 minutes, but something that can be created and then reach like millions of people at a time. Like that felt so different from the way that everything had been done in healthcare to date. Um, It just felt really exciting. And then, you know, why business and medicine? I think that what I then saw in that space then was that you know, there needs to be this interdisciplinary dialogue. I mean, because if, even if we think about these three areas, medicine, business, and technology, you know, they are such different fields and people don't really talk to each other very well, right? Like people speak different languages. And so I felt like it would be really important for me, either I was going to need to understand like ideally the business A on the tech side of it. And, and so just, you know, being able to understand you know, business principles and, and apply it to medicine. I think it's really just been actually this very natural intersection. And it's also been really lovely to be able to go between these two worlds and almost like be an ambassador of, um, you know, business to medicine and medicine to business. And and something that I think for anyone who has multiple interests, finding ways to merge those fields and and work at those intersections. um, For me, it's been something that's just been phenomenally fulfilling. So could you tell us a bit about uh, Brainstorm, the Stanford Lab for Mental Health and Innovation, kind of how and why you started it and what you do there? Absolutely. So Brainstorm is the world's first lab dedicated to mental health innovation entrepreneurship. And really, you know, one of the sayings we have in mental health is meet people where they are. And that was one of the foundations behind Brainstorm and thinking about, you know, there's so much potential around technology what is really missing? I think that was the big question. And I started it, gosh, about five or six years ago now, um, was living, you know, was in at Stanford, kind of in the middle of Silicon Valley, seeing a lot of startups already popping up and kind of wondering why is there this disconnect between all these companies that are being started and my patients really seeing a big change and impact in their own outcomes. Um, and one of the things that I realized, you know, being in academia was that it seemed like there was this big divide between what we were seeing in academia, what I was seeing as a clinician, and what was then being done by these startups, as well as by, you know, the big tech and social media companies. And so that's really what we're trying to do is take um, what happens in academia and be this bridge to tech and social media companies so that we can really create clinically informed tech-enabled products. And so we take our experience um, as clinicians, but also kind of combining the best of research in business and law in in engineering, um, and then work with companies like um, Pinterest, TikTok, you know, kind of the Silicon Valley companies as well as others. 
to then create consumer facing products. And I'll go back to this meet people where they are. Where are people now, right? Like we, we always talk about community medicine. And when we think about like what a community medicine looked like 10 years ago, it meant taking a van out into the community and offering blood tests and offering vaccines and everything because that's where people are living. Well, now everyone's living online. And so that's really why what we've done with Brainstorm is work with where, you know, hundreds of millions, now billions of people are living their lives online. And so how can we actually change these platforms to make it both more safe so that we're not doing harm online, as well as then thinking about how we can do good and everything from, you know, create a space where um, people can talk about mental health better, but then also get mental health treatments and therapeutics in, in, in a way that's safe and effective, basically. In thinking about that, really what we're focusing in on is scientific evidence that we're, you know, using the best evidence that we have scientifically, clinically, um, interdisciplinary, and really um, also trying to integrate things both inside and outside of the traditional healthcare system. And I think that that's something that is quite different about what we do at Brainstorm compared to, you know, most other academic labs, certainly, is that we're actually very much focused on what's going on, you know, in the rest of the world, if you will, um, and how do we, how do we integrate that? And then, um, and then scalable, right? Scalable to millions of people at a time. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit, I guess, of a specific example of like a project that Brainstorm is working on? Um, so um, I'll talk about what we did with Pinterest, actually. So with Pinterest, uh, we created what's called Compassionate Search. And I'll go back to how this all started. So Pinterest, you know, most people go to Pinterest for things like wedding planning or like talking about recipes or like, you know, decorating their home. And when Pinterest looked at the data, what they found out was that the fourth or fifth most common search term was actually things related to mental health, people looking up things like stress or depression tips. And this was, you know, so much more than when, what, than what they expected. And so they're really trying to figure out what do we, like, what do we offer people? They're already coming here looking for mental health help, you know? And so what do we offer them? And moreover, how do we make sure? And this is what I really loved about Pinterest was I felt like their values were so aligned with ours as clinicians, right? Mm-hmm. How do we make sure that it's scientifically sound? They were not at all t- kind of trying to think about, oh, how do we, you know, drive more traffic or, or, you know, thinking about like ads or anything, but really, really, how do we help people and kind of do the right thing ethically? What we did was actually a series of, of I guess, three major things. The first was what we call micro treatments. So what, uh, basically we created a suite of treatments thinking about what do we do with patients, you know, one-on-one or, or in the hospital and how do we take those same treatments that we do one-on-one and turn it into something that someone can use on Pinterest. So things like, you know, CBT, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, but instead turn it into something that on Pinterest you can do in like two or three minutes and take the best of that and kind of make it a Pinterestified type, type of thing so that you can do it on the platform itself, um, but also where it's separated. So like it's not tracking and it doesn't, um, you know, you you have your own privacy and everything. So it feels like safe to do. So one was basically now, basically, uh, if you go to wellbeing.pinterest.com, um, or now if you go to Pinterest, just like, you know, type in depression, automatically you'll get this separate pop-up that gives you the ability to do all these different exercises that work 
you know, we have all the evidence for it. And these were designed, you know, by our you know, clinical team in, in, in a partnership with Pinterest engineers and designers and writers and everything. Um, so it was a wonderful co- collaboration, you know, in, in that way and gave people this experience such that now, you know, when they're anxious, they can go to Pinterest and actually get the help that we would want them to in the setting that they're already in. Right. And I think that's what's so important. Um, so one was provide these treatments. The second thing we did was actually change what the user experience is like. So, for example, if you look at something like um, if you go to Google, right, like you, you uh, there's autofill. If you start to type in a question, it's going to guess what you're trying to type and it'll autofill. Now, that's great if you're trying to figure out, you know, like what couch you want to get. But if it's something like related to suicide or self-harm, you don't want it to be encouraging something dangerous, right? So basically what we did was a a slew of things like that, uh, you know, uh, related to the user experience was we thought both about what are things that are potentially harmful as well as what are things that can be helpful and changed multiple elements so that the whole experience is safer for people. So now, you know, if there's anything harmful, it won't autofill, for example. I remember if you before, if you were to type in depression, actually, um, it would say that there were no, nothing would come up. It would actually say, oh, we don't have any results for that because depression had been tagged as a unsafe word. Mm-hmm. And because of safety issues, um, it seemed like, oh, it would be better to not put anything up. But what we realized as clinicians is that's actually not good because we want to encourage discussion, right? We want to make people feel like, no, this is normalized. This is safe. And if anything, we don't want them going somewhere else and then like finding like potentially wrong content or bad content, right? So instead, we want to create the right environment so people have the ability to talk about things in a really um, safe and and effective way. So that was the, the second thing. The third thing was actually working with the engineers around the algorithm so that um, things could be identified in a better way. And specifically what we did was work around self, work with them around self-harm and really um, educating the engineers around what is self-harm? What are the actual terms that um, relate to self-harm? For example, we know that the the word that's actually the single biggest correlation with self-harm is Tylenol over something like, you know, cutting or burning, like Tylenol actually ends up being um, a word that is very, because like, you know, people are, are thinking about, about um, overdosing. And so like, how do we help them understand the words as well as the context in which the words are being used so they can understand, is someone actually like looking for medication or is this something that's dangerous? And so actually by working with them, um, uh, working with the engineers and then being able to change the algorithm, uh, self-harm content decreased by like 88% in, in like six months or something. Now I kind of want to talk about Real, um, which is the mental health app that you work on. Um, My favorite topic, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very excited about it. Um, and so I'd love to, maybe if you could tell us a bit about what Real is and kind of what your responsibilities are. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll go back and give my brother a shout out again, right? Start with the problem, right? So I'm going to start with the problem that we're really trying to solve. If we optimize all the therapists in our country, we would be able to provide one-on-one therapy for 7% of the population. Right, because there's under, like there's yeah. not enough therapists. Okay. Exactly. And, and so that's where we're starting from. And so really what we then realize is, wait a second. So what about the 93% of the country, right? Like who's going to look at, who's like looking out for them? What do we provide for them? Because they deserve help. And what are we going to do? 
So that's really what we're trying to do is we're trying to build a new therapy model that will address everyone. And the core of what we're doing at Real is called a product called Pathways. Mm -hmm. And what Pathways are is it's this on-demand multi-session program, like a class, right? Or a, a course where, uh, you know, you are able to go through this entire program. It's led by our, our therapist. And it's specifically around a, a very specific topic or goal, like navigating adult friendships or understanding your anxiety or depression. And I explained that because, you know, right now when people go to therapy, it's, it sort of ends up being almost like this black box, right? Like you, you go and see this therapist one-on-one and you know, you have your issues, but you don't really know exactly what you're going to be talking about or what you're going to be doing. And so what our pathways offer is you actually go in from the beginning and say like, oh, I want to work on my sleep or I want to work on my depression. And so you have this entire program that's been designed by our therapists and it includes videos, it includes reflection questions, it includes like tips. And it's sort of this like really um, holistic kind of program that you're able to go through. It includes also real life challenges to practice the skills that you're developing. And all of this is really in service of our members being able to build stronger relationships with their own mental health and supporting them as they take proactive care in their own mental health. You know, one of the things you asked earlier was uh, around kind of like the future of mental health, what I think is so interesting. And what I actually didn't talk about then that I'll talk about now is measurement. So what I think is really important that's missing so much for mental health right now that needs to be a part of the future of mental health is measurement. And specifically that we are being more proactive about measuring how people are doing. The minute people join the program, they take an assessment and they get their numbers and they're able to engage with that data and have such a richer understanding of what's going on with them. And then they can like make choices based on how they're doing. And I think that completely transforms the experience because then you have such a deeper understanding. How do you kind of get, I guess, people on board and especially, I guess, people who are in, like, who are interested in mental health may sign up and kind of join real and like want to engage, but like, how do you get someone who's like totally anti mental health care, but needs it? Let me tell you a story. So with real, we have multiple pathways. We have, you know, depression, anxiety, and one of our pathways actually is around um, understanding your career. So when we advertise, we advertise these different pathways. And what we've seen is specifically for men, some over 50% of men actually end up joining real to begin with because they see the career pathway and that is what draws them in. They realize, Oh, I want to address my career. Then when we look at what they sign up for and actually engage in, it's actually our, how to understand your feelings. So to answer your question, so you're right. There's so much stigma, right? And so maybe what that means is that it's scary to say, Hey, I'm going to join something and talk about my feelings. And that's what I think that that's actually what we need to do. And I'm going to um, reference Tom Insel here. One of the things that Tom Insel has said for years, they don't want what we're selling, right? Meaning that like the marketing basically is what the field of mental health has just done so poorly. Mm-hmm. And it's scary, right? Because of stigma, because of all, all these sorts of things. And that's exactly what we need to learn how to do much, much better is make it safe and make people feel welcome and warm and celebrate what, what they're doing. And so if we can help, if we can meet them in other places, like talking about things like career or relationships, and then bring them in and help them see, oh, look, and you can also work on all these other things. I think that creates a safe and welcoming environment. 
What makes Real different from other mental health apps um, like BetterHelp or Talkspace? So, you know, I, we are kind of already talked about one-on-one versus being able to reach, you know, one-to-many. And, and that's, I think, you know, so critically important. But beyond that, I think the biggest thing I would say is quality. And ultimately, when, make an analogy to education here. And so, so if we think about, like, what education could look like, what if we trained every medical student by having a one-on-one tutor? That's essentially what the one-on-one therapy is like, right? If we think about something different, like every medical school around the country has an intro to reading EKGs lecture, right? And that lecture is designed by probably one or two professors at every single medical school. And it probably gets recreated every like five to 10 years as that person goes on and does something different, right? And so the quality of that lecture may be good, maybe great, maybe not that great, right? But the point is that like you have hundreds of people that are recreating the same thing and teaching that. And so the learning that medical students all around the country are getting has that much of a range, right? Now that doesn't really make sense. What we should do if we think from like the perspective of how do we educate our medical students is we should get the best educator in EKGs and create one awesome lecture or two awesome lectures and distribute that to all the medical schools, right? If we think then how how do we have the best quality that's what we need to do. And that's exactly the difference, I think, between what happens when you go to these, you know, one-on-one kind of companies versus what we have at Real. Because what we want at Real is not only have we taken the absolute best therapist, but in creating our pathways, we actually have multiple therapists that have then worked together and we've put them through multiple levels of multiple um, tiers of Um, improvement. So for example, we make sure that everything is um, quality control, basically, like, right, we're we're looking, does this have the best scientific evidence? We're looking to make sure that it's culturally competent. And we kind of have um, all of these levels of review to make sure that it is the absolute best product it can be. And so then the quality of what we're able to deliver is far better than what any individual therapist can do. And so as we're running out of time now, I'd love to just do a quick lightning round with you. How do you take care of your mental health? So one, I should say, you know, something that continues to be a struggle. And in particular, I think as a, as a woman in medicine, one of the things that I struggle the most with is, um, is, is really learning how to take care of myself. I would say four things that four kind of categories of things that I do. One is behaviors. Um, and really for me, that's been a morning routine. So making sure I sleep eight hours, seven to eight hours a day, even in med school, I start my day with gratitude. So every day I start off by saying who, who or what am I grateful for? And I, I oftentimes will text someone if they're like my gratitude for that morning and say like, I'm grateful for you. And here's what, um, I do mindfulness. I do calm every morning, uh, usually in bed for about 10 minutes, um, and then exercise and journaling. So that's sort of my like morning routine, um, next then treatment. So for me, that's, you know, meds, therapy, real pathways, those they're kind of three, three forms of treatment. Um, and then learning, you know, the, so we say psychoeducation is the technical term, but really it's learning, reading. Um, I just read uh, Dopamine Nation, actually, which is written by one of my, um, one of my colleagues at Stanford, Anna Lemke. She runs our uh, addiction clinic and our dual diagnosis clinic. Phenomenal book, recommend it to everyone. And then talking, you know, just talking about it. And, and that's been one of the biggest changes for me is I'm so, so vocal with friends, with family, with, with society, now, publicly now, if you will. But really, I think that that's such a big 
part of what has helped my own mental health. Well, thank you so much for being so open with us and speaking with us today. Um, It's been a great conversation. I definitely learned a lot. I love speaking with you. Um, Thank you. Thank you. And again, thank you for everything that you and your whole team are doing. Thank you all for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare, on Twitter at ThiaHC, and on our website at ThiaHC.org for more content and to join our vibrant community of young professionals, entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders in healthcare. Special thanks to our amazing audio editors, Ellie Park, Asim Jane, Nikita Gupta, and Katie Donahue. If you're enjoying our content, please consider supporting our podcast by donating at anchor.fm slash thea-hc slash support.